Back in June uh, of this summer, the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, uh, upheld a case called Obergfell versus Hodges uh, that looked at the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which is the protection clause of the Constitution. And they looked at it to see whether or not marriage between a man and a woman was considered discriminatory. And in their ruling, in that five to four ruling, they overturned historical law to say that yes, that somehow marriage between a man and a woman as it had been defined, as it had been created by God was unconstitutional. So they rewrote the Constitution, wrote the laws of the United States of America to state that any person, man and man, woman and woman, could now be married in any state in our union. And that any state had to recognize the other marriages from other states. Now, what was amazing is that it seemed like that case in that instance caught so many people, especially in the church, off guard. Because instead of hearing church people and Christians respond uh, to what was going on, it, there seemed to be just a reaction. And that reaction was emotional, and, and it was driven by emotion, and it seemed like we really weren't keeping our eyes on what was happening in the culture around us. We've been talking about this series about embracing culture and engaging our culture. And to do that, we have to keep our ear and our fingers on the pulse of what's happening. And the church seemed to get caught off guard. You know, what was amazing to me is that uh, all the news, it consumed everything this summer. It consumed everything really for the last year. Uh, the idea of gay marriage and the idea of, of could gays get married in the United States and, and uh, what would the churches have to do about it and how would private business have to react to that. All the news, uh, you would think that it involved a huge amount of people, but in reality, those that identify themselves as gays, lesbians, or transgendered make up less than 3% of our population. So that the idea of the Supreme Court of the United States for 3% of our population took marriage which had been established by God, defined by God, which historically had always been between a man and a woman defined, and overturned that was amazing. And it, and it seemed to throw everything on its head. And I think what caught so many people off guard was the speed by which our culture has shifted. I mean, those of you that are young, it's tough for you to recognize, but just back in 1996, 1997, which is really less than 18 years ago, uh, the Congress of the United States, both the Senate and the House, overwhelmingly passed a law called the Defense of Marriage Act. And that Defense of Marriage Act said that marriage could only be defined as being between a man and a woman in all of the states, and it made it illegal for any other marriages to be recognized. Bill Clinton, who was president at the time, uh, ran on, for election on the Defense of Marriage Act and overwhelmingly supported it and signed it into law. That's just 18 years ago. In 2007, both Democrat his, uh, candidates for the presidency, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, in a forum by Rick Warren, when asked the question, what do you feel about the definition of marriage, both defended the Defense of Marriage Act and both said in 2007 that they believed that marriage could only be defined as being between a man and a woman. And yet we see how quickly those things change. It's amazing how quick things change for political expediency. But yet our culture has shifted so rapidly. In 20 years we've gone from overwhelmingly supporting to now overturning written law. 
And, and what's amazing to me is, is the very same people who would say that you were just upholding the same view that uh, our president held just five years ago, or you were upholding the view that was the majority of the United States of America, you will now be considered a bigot. You'll now be considered a hate monger. See, this issue is a huge deal, and it's one of the reasons that we're trying to talk about this. And, uh, you know, what's amazing to me is that, that the church's responses have been so varied, depending on what church you go to. See, some churches, a lot of churches, just seem to ignore it. We don't want to talk about it because to open it up is to open up a can of worms. And we want people in church to feel comfortable. We don't want you to have to wrestle with things because you might struggle. We might say something you disagree with and and you may not come back to our church. And so it's easier just to not talk about it. Then you have some churches that it's all they talk about. I mean, they have banged a drum on it since the first time it rose up, for the first time it was ever heard about. I mean, you would think in those churches that the only sin that God hates is the sin of homosexuality because it's all they talk about. And others within that same culture have decided that the best response is to just kind of remove themselves from that culture, to remove themselves from all the culture. They, they've kind of separated themselves into, into Christian subculture. They don't do anything with outside world. They don't watch any of the media. They don't watch anything that might influence them or might have an influence on them. So they've totally separated themselves. And so it's funny, you've got some people that are banging uh, people on the head, and you've got others that are separated, and then you've got this vast group of mainstream, really old-line, traditional evangelical churches that have embraced gay marriage. Not only embraced gay marriage, but they have even gone as far as to celebrate gay marriage. They celebrate it because they're performing same-sex weddings in their churches, and they're even ordaining same-sex um, individuals who are in relationships who... who profess to be gay or profess to be homosexual, they're ordaining them in church. And they're recognizing that those people are now part of the clergy. And, and then there's a vast group where I feel like we are, where we're caught in the middle. Those of us who want to engage our culture, those of us who want to be uh, a part of the conversation, we want to be involved in reaching people for Jesus Christ but yet we still hang on to our convictions, yet we still want to be salt and light. So where do we find that balance? And so this morning as we look at this uh, 200 proof series and talk about uh, all of these issues that we've been talking about, what I want to deal with is, is getting back to what's the principle been in every one of our studies, and that is what does the Bible say? Can you see it just like when we talked about abortion and just like when we talked about uh, doctor-assisted suicide or any of the other issues that we've looked at, people always want to talk about their rights and yet no one wants to talk about what is right according to the Word of God. And so this morning we're not going to get into the arguments of emotion. We're not going to get into the arguments of, uh, of trying to weigh one group against the other. But yet we're going to go back to Scripture to try to examine what Scripture says. You see, if there's one thing we've learned in this series that we started it off by declaring that there is absolute truth. And that truth is found in God's Word and only in God's Word. And if you and I were to apply that truth to our life, if we embrace that truth, the Bible says it will set us free. And we've also understood and recognized that you and I are called to love our neighbor. We learned last week when we talked about immigration and we talked about refugees that while the Bible says we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus said right behind that is love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we answered that question, who is our neighbor, last week. And it certainly relates to what we're going to talk about this morning. 
So how do you wrestle with the tension of standing on the truth of the Word of God and yet loving your neighbor and showing them that you care? Now you see, I understand this is a, a huge hot-button issue. And just by bringing it up, you can be labeled a bigot or a hate monger or a homophobe. I mean, in Canada, just preaching this topic from the pulpit can get you fined for hate speech now. But yet we have got to discuss issues that are dealing with a culture from a biblical standpoint or we are going to lose a generation that has no idea what their convictions are and what the Bible says about some of these issues. Because you see, times are changing. Things are moving rapidly. Some of you are younger. You've grown up in a culture that has always accepted homosexuality. It has never been outside the norm to know and talk to people who are homosexual. Uh, matter of fact, a Pew Research poll showed this last year that in the last 10 years, uh, the, the support for gay marriage within evangelical churches has risen 10%, but in that same number, 25% of those under 35 have changed their mind or changed their opinion. So there's a lot of you that are younger, and you, you've just grown that this was normal, so you don't see there's any problem with homosexuality. Some of you, I know it can be a touchy subject because some of you know homosexual people. Some of you have people in your families that are homosexual. And it's caused conflict and you don't know how to deal with it and you don't know how to address it. And you've taken that first approach of trying to just separate yourself from it and trying to, not to talk about it. There may be some of you in here that have even struggled with same-sex attraction, struggled with some of those thoughts and, and, and in that environment. And, and you struggle with what do I do with these feelings? What do I do with these emotions? See, it's not just cut and dry. It's not just black and white because people are involved. And you and I have got to learn to be sensitive to understanding that our main purpose is to love and reach people. So how do we stand for truth and love and reach people? How do we stand for what the Word of God says and yet love and reach people? And, and I know in a sermon that, that's going to be 25 minutes or 30 minutes, you can't touch on all of those topics. You can't cover everything perfectly. And so what I want to do is I want to focus on what the Bible says and how we're supposed to respond, what the truth of the Word of God is. Because I'm convinced that as Christ followers, we have to examine Scripture and be secure in what we believe and why we believe it, but yet also be about engaging our culture, be about reaching those very people that are hurting and, and empty and in need of God's mercy and grace that we just sang about. Now, I want to look at God's Word this morning and, and just, uh, just a survey quickly of some scriptures that deal with this very topic. And I understand that there's a lot of people out there that, that can take and twist the Word of God, that can uh, excuse the Word of God away, that can say, well, you know, this verse doesn't say that, or this verse, and a lot of times we just ignore the verses. And, and that's not just when dealing with homosexuality. We do that with all of our topics. We do that with whatever sin you and I struggle with. The Bible says Paul told uh, Timothy, you know, that in the last days people are going to surround themselves with pastors that say what their itching ears want to hear. And so it's very easy uh, for us to find somebody that justifies the sin that we struggle with to tell us why it's not a sin. And so people go to that church for that reason. So it's easy to say, well, this scripture doesn't say that, or, or even ignore scripture altogether, which all of us have done. But what we need to recognize is that the Scripture is very clear on this subject. And not only is it very clear, 
but the totality of historical uh, representation in the church. Last 2,000 years the church has interpreted this scripture one way and we have to stand on what that interpretation is. It's not some kind of new revelation. Matter of fact in the Old Testament there are at least 10 verses that deal with homosexuality. Verses that go all the way back to the law in Leviticus chapter 18. He gives a list of all of these admonitions against sexual sin. And he says things like this, You should not lie with a male as a woman or a woman as with a male, for it is an abomination. The word abomination means it is outside of the realm of God's purposes. He goes on in Leviticus later in chapter 18 of that same book when he's talking about these sins and he's listing these sins and he lists homosexuality right there with bestiality and incest and not because they're very similar but because they are all an abomination. He says they are worthy of being killed, part of the death penalty. Now people say, well, well, that's the old law. We no longer have to live by the old law. Well, Jesus didn't come to abolish and get rid of the old law. He came to fulfill the old law. You see, when Jesus came, people that I talked to say, well, we don't even look at the Old Testament because, you know, it's the old law. It's not relative to us anymore. Jesus never said that the Old Testament wasn't relative. We didn't throw out the Ten Commandments when Jesus came. We didn't throw out the law when Jesus came. Jesus fulfilled those things. You see, what the law does is it reveals our heart and God's heart. And God's heart is pretty clear when it comes to these things. You can read these passages and see that these kind of behaviors are an abomination to what God's will is and to what God's direction is. You have the stories in Genesis. You have the stories in in, in Judges that talk about men coming in. And in Genesis, you have a story in Sodom and Gomorrah there where Lot, you know, is compelled by these gay men. They want him to come out. So they can rape him, and it says that it was an abomination. Matter of fact, many people believe Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed simply because of the rampant sexual sins that were in flooding the region. The Old Testament is filled with scripture that help us understand why this kind of behavior is a sin. But the New Testament isn't silent on it. There are at least three times in, in 2 Corinthians, and then also in Timothy, uh, and also in, in uh, 1 Timothy where lists are given that talk about sexual sins and homosexuality is listed along with seven or eight other sins and described as being outside of the mainstream of God's will. And anytime that we recognize that something is outside of God's will, we recognize it to being a sin when it misses the mark. Probably the most prominent scripture that's used most of the time is in Romans chapter 1. Because you see in Romans, Paul is trying to convince believers that all of us are sinners, that we have all been born with a corrupt and sinful heart. And so in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, he's talking about us being sinners. And in Romans 1, he is talking about what society looks like when they deny Christ and they deny God and they reject God's teaching. And he comes to this passage in in Romans, and I want to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Romans chapter 1, in describing what society might look like when they reject God. Listen how he says it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks in Him. But in their thinking they became futile, and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and and other sorts. And see what he's saying is, is that when they begin to reject God, they stopped worshiping God, the Creator, and started worshiping each other. They started worshiping things. Society began to denigrate. By rejecting Christ. And he says, and this is what else 
happened to them. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped, served, created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to their own shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed indecent acts with other men and received for themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, did you hear the, the language used there? It's not hard to, to escape what he's trying to say. He's saying those that are living apart from God, those that deny the ultimate reality of Jesus Christ will always give in to their most base nature. And their most base nature is corrupting. And that corruption works its way from the inside out because God is not the center of their life. He says, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip and slanderers and God-haters and insolent and arrogant and boastful. And they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, fatherless, heartless, and ruthless. Now, that's a whole big list. So it's easy for us to recognize that while homosexuality is not uh, A and everyone else falls under B, they are all listed as sexual sin. And we need to remember that when we begin to teach on what the Bible says. But it is very clear that homosexuality and homosexual behavior is a sin. It, It is something that divides us from the heart of God. He goes on to say this, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those things, but they also approve of those who practice them. You see what he's saying is when culture becomes so corrupt that sexual sins become rampant, that that gossip and maliciousness and hate becomes so rampant, he said what happens is not only are those people doing it, but they are justifying their doing it and making excuses for it. And encouraging other people to do it. Now, doesn't that sound like what's going on in our culture today? You see, we've moved beyond the idea of tolerance. No longer are we expected just to uh, tolerate somebody that does something that we may not agree with. That's not the, the goal anymore. Now the goal is that everyone has to agree with what's happening or, or you're cut outside of mainstream. Because see, what they're asking for the churches to do is not just say, we recognize that those people can do what they want to do. What they're saying is, we want people in the church to put their stamp of approval on what they're doing. And that's not just on homosexual acts. It's on all kinds of behavior. Somewhere the church has got to draw the line. Somewhere as Christians, we have got to draw the line and make a stand for what is right and what is true. Now, I understand when you begin to teach this, there are all kind of arguments. I've heard the arguments. I didn't choose my sexuality. I didn't choose to be this way. Matter of fact, Lady Gaga, right? I was born this way. It's who I am. You hear it all the time. These are just my natural feelings. And those arguments can be persuasive. Matter of fact, I think it's why a lot of young people have been pulled into that thought process because they hear their friends or, or hear people that you know say, listen, they just love each other. And if they love each other, it has to be right. And if we feel this way, then our feelings have to be right. 
How do you argue with somebody's feelings? How do you argue when somebody says, that's just the way I was born? But you see, what that presumes and what that uh, decides to each one of us is, is to assume that, that somehow our hearts, when we feel, are good. That somehow our feelings are, are okay. That somehow our natural order of things are always going to lead us to do right behavior. Because I feel a certain way, it should be okay because my heart is pure. But the Bible teaches just the opposite. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches in, in Proverbs that there is a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it leads to destruction. The Bible teaches in Romans chapter 3 that your heart is not pure. And your heart does not reveal pure desire. Your heart does not bring about a pure devotion. Uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For you and I are created with a corrupt and messed up heart. See, we can't let our feelings and our hearts be our guide because our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts will not always produce the right feelings. Now, that's not just used to justify homosexuality. It's used to justify all kinds of things. can't tell you how many people I've had in my office, college students or young adults, that, that say, listen, we, you know, we want to get married, but we're not ready to get married, and we're moving in together. And we talk about that, and we talk about premarital sex. And, and the one thing I hear more than anything else is well, we just love each other. And if we love each other, it should be right because it feels right and because it feels okay. You see, the guide of our heart is not what it feels like because your feelings will deceive you. And your feelings come from a corrupted heart. People say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. I'll just, I'm just going to follow the teachings of Jesus. No, you're not. Because one of the main teachings of Jesus was, if you want to follow me, what do you have to do? Deny yourself. You know what the Message Bible says there, what it means to deny yourself? It means to deny your old nature, to deny your corrupt heart and follow Jesus. Because see, your corrupt heart will lie to you. Your heart that, that is sinful and deceitful will, will tell you that these feelings are okay just because it feels good, just because you were born that way. Listen, we were all born that way. There is not one person in here that wasn't born corrupt it's not one person in here that wasn't born with a desire to want to do wrong and want to do bad. You may not have a desire for homosexual attraction, or you may not have a desire for that kind of behavior, but you had a desire to do evil. You don't believe that we're born with a sin nature. Go watch the nursery sometimes. <laughs> Nobody has to teach them how to be bad, how to be selfish, how to make bad decisions. Because we're all born with a corruptible heart. And yet we justify our behavior by saying my heart tells me it's okay. That's a dangerous place to be. And you see what we have got to do as believers is we have got to answer the question. What is going to be my guide? What is going to be the leadership of my heart? Is it going to be God's word and his truth? Or is it going to be my feelings? It is going to be what's popular, what's politically correct, what, what the media says is okay. Because if it's going to be God's word and it's going to be God's truth, then you and I are going to have to make some decisions about our convictions. And those decisions aren't always popular. And the Bible never said it was going to be easy to follow Jesus. The Bible never said it was going to be easy to stand up for the things that are true and to stand up for the things that are right. You see, people will do everything they can to justify their sin 
Before you start pointing fingers, every one of us in this room have done the same thing. How many times have you rationalized? How many times have you ignored Scripture? How many times have you extended God's grace and said, well, God will forgive me anyway. I I can just do this. I can act this way and I can be this way because God's going to forgive me anyway. How many of us had twisted Scripture to try to make it justify? How many of us have justified what we've done by our feelings or by our emotions or by our history or by our background or by what somebody else is doing? You see, our God has got to be the Word of God. And if it's not the Word of God, then we're going to be flighting and floating on every whim of doctrine. That's why churches can, can change and move and switch and sway. Because too many churches in this country are holding up their finger and trying to find out what's popular and what's acceptable and what's tolerant. Listen, it's not an accident that those churches, those mainline denominations that are accepting and celebrating sinful behavior are all dying on the vine. Because the moment that you stop living on this word, the moment that you stop proclaiming that this is the truth that sets people free, and the moment you start saying we are going to do whatever is popular, whatever is acceptable, whatever is going to draw a crowd, is the moment that you stop becoming the bride of Christ. The Bible says they'll write Ichabod, the glory of God has departed from here. Now you may do good things. You may go out and do ministry and feed the hungry and help the homeless, but you're doing nothing for somebody's eternal soul if you're not standing up for the Word of God. You see, and what we've got to recognize, and this is the hard part, it is not loving somebody, it is not loving our neighbor to remain silent. You see, we think if the people I love are in bondage and in danger, if I just don't say anything, because that's the easy route, just won't say anything. But that's not what God calls us to. Because see, if I love somebody, I don't want to see them in bondage. I don't want to see them hurt. That doesn't mean I go and beat them over the head with my Bible or try to prove to them that I'm right. It means that I love them. But I speak the truth in that love. I had, I had a long time ago, I had to make the decision that, uh, especially when I was a youth pastor and a college pastor, that uh, I wasn't going to volunteer information. Because my spiritual gift is prophetic, and that doesn't mean I tell the future. It means I speak the truth pretty black and white, and I'm pretty cut and dry. I don't, I don't mince words. And so I've had to learn. And, and when you're prophetic, there's no compassion. On my list of spiritual gifts, prophecy is way here, and compassion doesn't even make it on the list. And so in the last 25 years of ministry, I've had to learn to develop compassion. Because a lot of times when you're just speaking the truth, you don't care if people get their feelings hurt because you're just telling the truth in the Word of God. You're just saying what's right and wrong, and that's not the way Jesus calls us to. There's got to be balance. So I had to learn compassion. So I learned I'm not going to volunteer information. Somebody comes and says, teenagers in my youth group come and say, Rusty, what do you think about my boyfriend? Then I will tell them what I think. But I won't volunteer. I won't say, listen, do you not realize you're dating a loser? Okay, get away from that guy. I, don't, I just keep it to myself. Smile. But when they come ask, then it's my responsibility. If I love somebody, I'm going to tell them the truth. I can't deny what God is saying and what God is doing to speak into people's hearts. And, and listen, it is even more louder when it comes to biblical marriage. Some people say, well, listen, I'll understand the homosexuality of sin, and I recognize that it's a sexual sin, but what's the big deal about marriage? 
Because you see, marriage was created in the sanctity of God's heart. And when it was created, it was created and defined by being between a man and a woman for the purposes of painting a picture to a lost world of God's covenant love for His people. Now, I could take you through the Old Testament teachings of what a covenant means and how you cut a covenant and the shedding of blood that was always used for the covenant and how Jesus Christ, when He created the new covenant, had the shedding of blood, how in a marriage relationship the shedding of blood always concluded the covenant, how God brought those things together. But what you need to recognize is when Jesus teaches in Matthew, Jesus did not mince words on what he believed marriage to be. He said, when a man and a woman leave their father and their mother, put their past behind and cling to one another, just the same way we cling to Jesus Christ. It's a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. That's what Paul calls it in Ephesians. The passage in Hebrews that's given in your order of service, Hebrews chapter 13, there he says that the marriage bed is, should be celebrated and it's a dangerous place for those that abuse or defile the marriage bed. See, that's why sexual sin, Paul says sexual sin is always much more dangerous. Not because it's going to lead you to a deeper hell, not because it's gonna, but because it corrupts you from the inside out. Sexual sin always begins to destroy the temple of God and corrupts your intimacy with God. And that destroys the covenant. That's the picture of marriage. That's why it's so important to us. That's why you cannot say same-sex marriage because there is no such thing. Because the moment that you set asunder what God has joined together, it's not marriage. Now, if you want to call it civil unions, that's fine, and I'm okay if the government wants to get out of the marriage business altogether. If they feel it's discriminatory and they want to have something called civil unions or government unions or whatever they want to call it, call it what it is. But in the church, when we come together before God and declare something to be identical to the bride of Christ in Christ, it is called marriage, and it is always in the Bible between a man and a woman. And there's no room for debate. There's no room for, for shimmying or giving. No room for misinterpretation. You say you want to always follow Jesus' teaching. Jesus was very clear on marriage. So if all that's true, Pastor, what do we do? If all this is true, how do we respond? How do we engage our culture with biblical answers? Let me just close with a couple of suggestions. First thing is we need to recognize that our goal as Christians is to reach people not to be right, not to win the culture war. See, somehow in the church, we got embraced with the state and we got lured into this idea that we were having this battle for the culture of our nation. Jesus didn't give you that goal. And somehow we decided that if the goal uh, to win the culture war was to bring God to America, that it was okay to use ungodly principles to make it happen. So we decided it's okay to be hateful towards those that disagree with us. And it's okay to be angry and judgmental towards those we don't like. And we've acted that way. See, Jesus said, I came to set the captives free. I came to heal the sick. And yet I find ourselves in church so many times, we do nothing but condemn the, the captives and we condemn the sick. That's how it sounds. 
See, my goal, your goal is to share the good news with a hurting and lost generation of people that, that it's empty and don't even know they're lost. It's not to be right. It's not to win an argument. It's not to have the last word. It's not to always be the one who has all the answers. See, our goal is not to win a Supreme Court case. Our goal is not to win the argument with your neighbor. We've already won. We've won the ultimate victory. Our goal as Christians is to walk out of that victory recognizing we have a task to do and to get about it. We, we have a goal. The second thing that we need to remember is we need to realize that homosexuality is a sin, but it's only one on a list of many. In both of those lists, in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, there are at least eight other sins listed. And I always find it interesting in church that we like to talk about the sins that we don't struggle with, but we never talk about the sins we do. I mean, you, you talk about something that you don't struggle with and people will amen. I mean, you start talking about homosexuality, amen, preacher, preach it. We need to know, that's right. And you start talking about gluttony and everybody sinks down in their seat. Pastor, we just had Thanksgiving. You can't talk about gluttony. Pastor, they just opened Krispy Kreme. You can't talk about gluttony. Right? Because you see what we do in the church is everybody else's sin is always worse than my sin, right? That's not the truth. All sexual sin corrupts. All sin destroys intimacy. All sin separates us from a relationship to God. Is homosexuality a sin? Yes, it is. And it is destructive but we need to sp stop spending so much time worried about the sins of others and spend that same time examining our own hearts and removing the sin that's in there. See, we can't lose focus of what our calling is. We can't judge. We can't be hateful. We need to examine our words. You need to examine your motives to the things that you're saying. Make sure you remember who your neighbor is before you open your mouth, before you voice your opinion, before you jump on Facebook. Remember that you have an ultimate goal of sharing the love of Jesus Christ with people. We need to realize that homosexuality is not the only sin. We need to realize that we have a goal and a purpose. The third thing that's probably the most important thing is we need to recognize that we don't have to compromise our faith or our convictions. You can stand up for truth. may not be popular, may not win you a lot of friends, but we're called to stand. We're called to speak up. If you love somebody, you don't have to accept their lifestyle. You don't have to accept their choices. It's not either or. It can be both. And you can love somebody enough to speak the truth and still love them and still accept them. Somebody asked me before, if you had a family member that was gay and invited you to their wedding, would you go? I said, yeah, I'd go. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't perform it. But I'd go. Why? Because I love that person. If it's a family member, I'd be uncomfortable. You say, well, if you went, you would be approving it. No, I wouldn't. I'd be supporting the person that I love. And by not supporting that person, I may shut a door to ever be able to talk to them. I've got friends I went to high school with, too, that I went to seminary with that are homosexual. I talk to them on Facebook all the time. We disagree about almost everything. But whenever I, what I found is in our disagreements, we disagree in love. And they, they don't doubt 
where I stand, but they also don't doubt that I love them and respect them. Enough that when they struggle with things, they come and ask me, Rusty, what do you think? Because you see, we need to recognize that our goal is to win people, it's to touch people's hearts. And I can stand up for truth and I can not, not mince words. See, that means that if you're in a relationship, if you're married, stand on your vows and your commitment. If you're dating someone, stand up for purity. Stand up for the cause of purity. Recognize that sexual sin destroys everyone. But we can stand. Don't be afraid to speak up. Somebody asked, well, what about this uh, lady that was in, the, the Kim Davis lady that was in Virginia? What do you think about that? Did she, was that making a stand? No, it wasn't making a stand biblically. She had a job to do. She decided she wasn't going to issue marriage licenses. That was part of her job. If she believed in her convictions, she could, should have quit her job. She trusted that God was going to take care of her. Quit your job. That's making a stand. So we need to examine our hearts, examine our motives, examine what we're doing. And the last thing that's most important is we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our communities. If we would pray half as much as we complain, imagine what God could do. You see, you and I need to recognize it's not going away. It's not going to change we live in a broken and sinful and messed up world. And Paul told Timothy, it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Cultures only always collapse much quicker than they ever develop. And we are on that collapsing, that corrupting side. But we have a job to do. We have a role. We have a responsibility to engage our culture but recognize that those people that are empty and those people that are hurting, they will only listen to us if we earn the right to be heard. When I served in College Station, College Town, the church I was serving had an issue. Um, we were on TV every week. We were on TV, tape delayed a week, but TV locally in our 11 o'clock service. And in the back in the choir, in the middle section of the choir, was a, a man who was homosexual. And, and I knew, everybody knew he was homosexual, and, and I didn't really have a problem with him being in the choir. I did have a problem because I feel like anybody that comes on stage has to give an account for their lifestyle. So while it bothered me, nobody asked me what I thought about it. And then he became politically active in the community as a, as a gay activist. He was known around the town. And I noticed that every Sunday he would make his way to sit right in the front row in the middle so that every Sunday on television... He was always sitting right behind the pastor. I went to the pastor and said, I've got a problem with this. Struggle with this. I believe by us allowing him to be in the choir and sit there, we are telling our community that we think it's okay. I don't mind him coming every Sunday. We had a big group of people that were sitting out here listening, but to be on stage, we were putting our stand of approval. So it became an issue in the church. A lot of other people had a problem. So they asked him to move. I was probably not as diplomatic as other people were in how I handled it. I was in my late 20s. I knew everything, okay? My prophetic voice was much louder and stronger than it probably is now. There was right and there was wrong, and this was wrong. And so my pastor invited me to come to a Bible study he was teaching on the A&M campus. It was a Bible study he was asked to lead to the Gay and Lesbian and Transgendered Club at Texas A&M. Now, Texas A&M is a very conservative school, not a big club. 
But he felt like he needed to go and teach a Bible study there because it was the only way he could tell truth to those that are hurting. He and I even argued. I said, I wouldn't go. There's no way I'd go and teach it. By teaching it, you're saying it's okay. So, no, we've got to go. And so, I went with him. And I, and I just want to tell you, I was hardline. And I went to that Bible study, and we got there early, and there was another Christian group that was meeting in the same room. And so, I stood out in the hallway with about 10 or 12 other people that identified themselves as gay and lesbian and transgendered my pastor. And I stood there waiting to go in the room. They were standing over there. I stood over here. I didn't want anybody to think I was with them. Let's just be honest. And the Christians in that Bible study began to come out of that room. And the looks that they gave all of us in that hallway broke my heart. Because these people that were just in there singing and praising and praying came out of that room and had such judgment and such hate and such condemnation on these confused, hurting, and empty college students that were just standing waiting to read the Bible. And I thought, we've got to do better. We've got to do better. We've got to be about grace and mercy and love. Standing for what's right, but always letting grace be peppered in our conversation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you that, God, when our feelings are confused, when our emotions are confused, that, God, you're always there.